This fall, we've been following Jesus around the Gospels, asking the question, what are the Gospel writers telling us? And they are telling us the story of how God, through Jesus, became king, not just over Israel, but over the whole world. We began, if you remember, back in September in Luke 4. Jesus was in the synagogue in his hometown, and he got up to preach his very first sermon, and he quoted the prophet Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he said, Today the scripture is fulfilled in me. And Jesus kept his campaign promises, didn't he? including his promise to extend salvation to the Gentiles, to the nations. And, of course, his hometown wasn't all that cranked up about this part of his platform. In fact, they got so angry with Jesus that they tried to throw him off a cliff. See, for over 700 years, they'd been living under foreign occupation, and their expectation is that Jesus would liberate them from their oppressors, the Romans. But, of course, Jesus didn't come to destroy the Romans, but to save them. And this tension between Jesus' global mission and Israel's nationalistic hope never completely goes away during his ministry. In fact, one day it reaches a a fever pitch. And uh, the story is found in Luke 19, probably the climax of Luke's gospel. So let's turn there together, Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. The text will be on the screen. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So three questions to help us understand what's happening in this story. How does the kingdom unfold in Zacchaeus' life? How does the kingdom unfold through Jesus' life? And how might the kingdom unfold through us. So first, how does the kingdom unfold in Zacchaeus' life? Before we answer that, let's get one thing straight. Zacchaeus is a slime ball. Okay? 
Uh, here's how tax collectors worked. You were responsible for collecting taxes in a particular region, and you had a certain quota to meet, which went to Rome. But anything that you collected above and beyond that quota was yours to keep. So Zacchaeus, who is ethnically a Jew, is working for Rome and cheating his own people to get rich. He is a professional extortionist. But not only that, Luke says that he is a chief tax collector. He's the regional tax supervisor, if you will, which means he not only extorts his people directly, but he also skims off the top of what his subordinates extorted. So he's the senior slimeball. He's a pimp. He's pimping over his own people. Can you imagine what it was like living in Jericho? Every morning you get up, you walk to work, you walk right past Zacchaeus' house. When he first moved in, it was a, it was a nice three-bedroom ranch. But over time, it's, it's grown more palatial, more ornate. First the addition, then the fountain, then the gate. Then the Rolls Royce, the pool, the tennis courts. Now whenever you pass by, there's an army of landscapers and gardeners and butlers and maids. It's not that they resented his wealth, per se. They resented that he got rich off of their backs. Zacchaeus was a slimeball, a pimp, and everyone knew it. Zacchaeus was the epitome of everything that was wrong with Roman occupation. Because not only did the Romans use and abuse the Jews, but they hired Jews to use and abuse their own people. And it hurt. So it's no surprise that when Zacchaeus shows up at Jesus' parade, nobody goes out of their way to make sure that he can see Jesus. So what does Zacchaeus do? Climbs a tree. When I was a senior in college, my roommate Josh and I would climb trees. We started with the the 20-foot trees in our apartment complex, and then after a while it, you know, kind of escalated to the 50-foot evergreens planted on the eastern face of the library. And and those were great trees to climb, because from up there we were hidden, nobody could see us. So it was the perfect place to start, you know, making animal noises or calling down to people, (laughs) pretending to be the voice of God, you know. (laughs) But our fun came to an end the night that uh, Campus Safety, with their flashlights, spotted us up in those trees and made us climb down. We were both both a little bit surprised to learn that climbing trees was, was illegal on campus, but not nearly as surprised as they were to see us up there. The officer looked, looked at us, and you know, we're, we're, we're covered with pitch, we're covered with pine needles. We look like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, and the guy's just shaking his head, writing our names in his log. <laughs> Finally, he says, aren't you guys a little old to be climbing trees? We didn't think so, <laughs> but the, uh, the implication was grown men don't climb trees. Um, kids climb trees. Hooligans climb trees, people with too much time and not enough sense climb trees, but not, not Christian college kids, and certainly not wealthy professionals in Armani suits. But Zacchaeus was more than curious. Curiosity won't chase a rich man up a tree in broad daylight. He may have been a slimeball, 
But Zacchaeus desperately wanted to see Jesus. He needed to see him. And if the whole community was in his way, well, then he would have to get creative. Clearly, for whatever reason, Zacchaeus desperately needed to see Jesus. And when he'd heard that he would be in town, he planned his whole day around being in the right place at the right time. Whatever compelled him, it compelled him to foolishness. I mean, how often do you see businessmen climbing trees in broad daylight? In Luke 18, Jesus says to his disciples, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And here's Zacchaeus one chapter later showing us what that's like. When the kingdom of God unfolds in Zacchaeus' life, he becomes like a child. He forgets that he's an adult and that he's supposed to be sophisticated and self-conscious. He forgets to be afraid of what other people think. He forgets to pretend like he has it all together. He stops suppressing his desires, suppressing his hopes, suppressing his childlike wonder. He forgets that grown men don't climb trees. Let me ask you a question. How many times do we let fear keep us from pursuing Jesus with reckless abandon? How often does our wonder get stamped out of us by cynicism that we confuse with maturity? When the kingdom of God unfolds in Zacchaeus' life, he becomes like a child. He climbs a tree. Why does he climb the tree? Well, to get over the crowd. There was a religious, judgmental crowd standing between Zacchaeus and Jesus. And out of all those people, not one person gave him a front row seat. Not one person offered him a boost. Not one person said, hey, tax man, want to climb up on my shoulders? Why? Because they had already decided in their hearts that they didn't want Zacchaeus to get to Jesus. And they didn't think Jesus did either. Can you imagine the crowd? I mean, to Zacchaeus, it's big, it's hostile, it's unforgiving. When you think about it, Zacchaeus has the perfect excuse. He could so easily say, you know, I don't want to hang around these people. If this is what it means to follow Jesus, then I want nothing to do with it. But he doesn't say that. And he doesn't leave. And he doesn't judge the crowd that's judging him. When the kingdom of God unfolds in Zacchaeus' life, he gets over the crowd. How? Because Jesus is nothing like that crowd. He doesn't keep a record of wrongs. He doesn't exclude or look down on people no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. In fact, no one in history has ever been harder on judgmental people than Jesus. I mean, he's the one who said, do not judge or you too will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a two by four sticking out of your eye? 
You hypocrite, first take the two-by-four out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I mean, if you hate judgmental, condemning attitudes, then Jesus is your hero. Don't let a religious crowd stand between you and Jesus. Do what Zacchaeus did. Get over the crowd. When the kingdom of God unfolds in Zacchaeus' life, he climbs a tree. His fear and cynicism give way to childlike wonder, and he gets over the crowd. (laughs) What happens next? Well, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I'm going home with you. I'm eating at your house. And scholars say that Jesus, by inviting himself to eat and stay with Zacchaeus, was not only breaking the law, he was dismantling the very structures of Jewish society. Albert Nolan says this about Jesus' meals with the marginalized and rejected. He says it would be impossible to overestimate the impact that these meals had. By accepting them as friends and equals, Jesus takes away their shame and guilt. By showing them that they mattered to him as people, he gave them a sense of dignity and released them from their old captivity. The physical contact which Jesus must have had with them at the table must have made them feel clean and acceptable. Moreover, because Jesus was looked upon as a man of God and a prophet, they would have interpreted his gesture of friendship as God's own acceptance of them. They were now acceptable to God. Their sinfulness, ignorance, and uncleanness had been overlooked and were no longer being held against them. That's grace. By going home with Zacchaeus, Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, you know, everything that they say about you is true. I know everything about you. I know every evil, hurtful, and selfish thing you've ever thought, said, or done. But when I look at you, I see past all of that to a soul that is crying out to be made whole again. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. The judgment of God is different from the judgment of the crowd. And even though you are more wicked and sinful than you ever dared believe, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. If you believe that, Zacchaeus then God will explode in your life and everything will change. And everything did change. The radical grace of Jesus created radical repentance in Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This isn't emotional catharsis. Zacchaeus isn't saying, you know, I feel really bad about what I did. This is true repentance. This is metanoia, that Greek word that means changing your mind. He agrees with God that extortion is wrong because it deprives people of justice and breaks trust and destroys shalom. So what does Zacchaeus do? Well, the law, the Jewish law, only requires that he pays back what he stole plus another 20%. But Zacchaeus offers an astonishing 400%. Well beyond what the law requires of him. 
And notice nobody asks Zacchaeus to give anything to the poor. And yet he volunteers half of his wealth on their behalf. My Wednesday Night Grow class just came across this quote from Tim Keller who writes, an authentic experience of God's grace creates spontaneous generosity in a person's life. The grace of God makes Christ precious to us so that our possessions, our money, our time have all become eternally and utterly expendable. They used to be crucial to our happiness. They are not anymore. When the kingdom of God unfolds in Zacchaeus' life, he becomes just and he becomes generous. When Jesus says, today salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house, he is not saying, well... Now that Zacchaeus has got his act together, now that he's righted all these wrongs, now he can go to heaven. That's not what he's saying at all. Quite the opposite. He's saying, now that Zacchaeus knows that he is accepted by God, his relationships are beginning to pulse with the same grace that's turning him inside out. And isn't that beautiful? When the kingdom of God unfolds in Zacchaeus' life, he becomes like a child. He gets over the crowd. And he becomes not only just, but radically and extravagantly generous. God's grace explodes in his life and enables him to plow his resources into the lives of the poor. Not reluctantly, not under pressure, not because someone told him to, but freely and joyfully. That's how the kingdom unfolds in Zacchaeus' life. How does the kingdom unfold through Jesus? Well, verse 10 sums it up pretty nicely. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Remember, Jesus had no intention of stopping in Jericho. Verse 1 says that he was just passing through that town. But when he sees Zacchaeus in the tree, Jesus drops everything, he alters his itinerary, and he makes this reviled tax collector the focus of his attention. And I love how the scene plays out. Can can you picture how this all unfolded in time? Jesus and his entourage are, are, are entering downtown Jericho. It's not a particularly windy day, but Is it just me, or or is that big tree limb bobbing up and down? There's not a bird or a squirrel in the world who weighs that much. What is going on over there? He gets a little bit closer, and he realizes it's a boy. No, wait, it's a a man, a short man, but it's a a man. It's a well-dressed man. It's, It's Zacchaeus. And Jesus stops at the base of the tree. And a hush comes over the crowd. And Jesus looks up. And Zacchaeus looks down. And Jesus tilts his head to one side. And Zacchaeus swallows. 
and the crowd collectively hopes if ever there was a moment for Jesus to expose this systemic evil, this injustice, to crush it, this is it. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And the crowd's hopes soar. <laughs> Tax man's going to get it today. He is going down. They start looking around for tar and feathers, maybe a rope. But the next words out of Jesus' mouth dash their hopes. He says, I must stay at your house today. And I just love that scene. The crowd is ready to pounce. Jesus pursues. He embraces Zacchaeus in friendship. Jesus didn't come to rally his base. He didn't come to champion Jewish privilege. He didn't come to purify Israel of its least wanted citizens. He didn't come with a nationalistic agenda. He came to seek and to save the lost, including handicapped, untouchables, women, Samaritans, Gentiles, enemy soldiers, prostitutes, heck, even tax collectors who pimped over their own people. I mean, just think back on the people that we've met this fall as we followed Jesus around the gospel. A leper, demon-possessed children, a prostitute, a paralytic, a woman at the well who was a cultural and moral and religious outsider, a Canaanite woman with a similar profile, and now Zacchaeus. What do they all have in common? They're all outsiders. They're all living on the margins of their culture. They all lack privilege and access to power. And what does Jesus do? He gives them access to the power and compassion of heaven. To salvation. When God is king, look who benefits. Look who benefits when God is king. Jesus goes out of his way to share the transforming love and grace of heaven with those who least expect it. He proclaims good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. He sets free the oppressed and proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. That's how the kingdom unfolds through his life. And I think that's how the kingdom might unfold through ours. As we seek out and love those who are lost. As we welcome and embrace outsiders. As we expend ourselves on their behalf, absorbing some of their poverty, some of their otherness upon ourselves. Somebody asked me this past week, so what's, what's God doing at your church? And I said to this person with this great big smile on my face, he's sending us to the margins. 
We have people working with folks in recovery, people working with inmates, people working with inmates' families, with kids in juvenile detention centers. We just signed up to wrap our collective arms around a refugee family this year. We're serving the poor and the homeless in our community. Three families are getting ready to, to take in a handicapped girl from Ecuador for six months so she can get a surgery that she desperately needs. We are running to the margins. And I am so proud to be part of a church like College Church. If you're already running to the margins, if you're already seeking out those who least expect to be pursued by God, thank you. Bring someone along. Bring someone with you. Invite someone to join you to get in on this work as the kingdom unfolds. Let's make sure that what God is doing in our world multiplies. God's dream for College Church is to turn us inside out so that we might draw the outside in. Who do you know who feels far from God? Who do you know that's been discouraged and judged by a religious crowd? Who do you know who needs a little boost, an invitation to the front row so that they too can see Jesus? Who do you know who needs to bring Jesus home and discover that they are loved and accepted by the God who made them? It might be the poor. It might be a prisoner, but it could just as easily be your son or your daughter or your neighbor or the person in the dorm room or the cubicle right next to yours. What would it look like for you to seek them out and to love them? James Emery White in his book Rethinking Church says that the future of the church in America rests on the ability of Christians to form authentic friendships with non-believers and humbly witness to the life-changing reality of Christ in the context of those friendships. He says the church isn't going to grow through programs or events or crusades or strategies. It will grow when we seek out and love the lost. You are our growth strategy. We don't have any other strategy. Draw close to people and love them and show them Jesus. That's our strategy. I'll never forget when God showed me exactly what this looks like. I was leading a Bible study for students in a juvenile detention center. And a girl named Kat showed up. She'd never been there before. And she made it clear right from the moment she entered the room that she was an atheist. She thought the Bible was a bunch of baloney. She only came to the Bible study because her boyfriend was Catholic and she wanted to understand him better. Within minutes of us getting started, she had unleashed an all-out attack on God's goodness, the reality of heaven and hell, the veracity of the Bible, and the sanity of Christ's followers. And then she accused God of being sinful and the source of all evil and suffering. I struggled to engage this girl. 
She kept changing the subject. She didn't seem all that interested in listening to what anyone else had to say. And I have to admit, I, I felt some frustration inside of me as I sensed her attention slipping away. and I began to fear I was losing the other students as well. But after a while, a girl named Tina got Kat's attention. And she turned to her and with a loud voice said, Look at me. Look into my eyes. That got Kat's attention. She said, I care about you. Because you are precious to God and I don't want him to lose you. And she looked away from Kat and down the table and I noticed that Tina was crying. And Kat immediately quieted down and began for the first time that afternoon to listen. It was a humbling experience for me because I was so focused on defending the faith and trying to get through to Kat intellectually. But Tina was able to get through to Kat by showing her in a very real in very unassuming way, that she cared for her soul. And when the Bible study ended, the other students left, but Tina stayed in her seat. She continued to weep over her friend, Kat. And I said to Tina, you know, God is going to use your tears, and he's going to use your friendship to nudge Kat toward Jesus. And as I walked back to my car that day, I was overwhelmed by how much Tina had reflected God's heart. And I asked myself, when was the last time I wept over someone in my life who was lost? Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the ways he revealed and demonstrated your surprising and expansive and embracing love and grace. Thank you that he made good on his campaign promises. May we, like him, ache in our bones for those who, like Zacchaeus, are lost, are lost to you. And may we seek them out and love them and point them to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning, God makes his steadfast love and his work of salvation real to our senses as we eat the bread and drink the cup. I want to invite the elders to come forward. The Apostle Paul says the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is for those who identify with Jesus in his death, who have died to themselves in order to be made alive in Christ. It's for those who hope in his return when he will one day set the world to rights 
and wipe every tear from our eyes and make all things new. If that's not where you are this morning yet, we're glad that you're here. On the back of the bulletin are prayers to guide you into an authentic conversation with the God who made you. If you do put your trust in the crucified and risen Christ, and you do hope in his return, we invite you to the table. We invite you to take the cup, to take the bread, to return to your seat, to meditate on the ways in which God has pursued you, the ways in which he is at work in your life, and then ask him to guide your steps as you seek out and love others in his name. And then when everyone is served, we'll eat and drink together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. Come to the table.